Our sermon text today comes from Psalm 146. Uh, that's on page 525 in your pew Bibles. Uh, one more time, let's run through these worldview questions developed by Jay Sklar at Covenant Seminary. They get us into the mind of the psalm writers because they're the lenses through which the psalmist saw the Lord and themselves. And remembering who the Lord is, remembering what He does, their hearts were reoriented to trust in the Lord, to enjoy Him, even beyond what their eyes could see and the circumstances around them. So I'll read the questions if you would read the answers. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does He do? He blesses and protects those who embrace His covenant from the heart while demonstrating His justice against those who rebel against Him. When does He do these things? Often in the here and now and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? From the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for His justice. Uh, you know that while the saints of the Old Testament waited on the Lord, they often waited in difficult circumstances. We've heard about them in some of the psalms of the past weeks of the summer, those psalms of lament. And I heard from many of you how it, it put courage into your heart to remember how God invites you to give voice to your pain, even as he stands as your hope amid that pain. But that hope in the Lord, that, that is fully embodied in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, that hope supports and sustains something beyond lament, something else. It fuels a deep and wide enjoyment of God. In other words, hope, hope in Him fuels praise. That's what we see in Psalm 146. Would you pray with me as we come to see the hope that fuels praise? Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask of you what your servant Martin Luther asked of you centuries ago, that you would give us your Holy Spirit who writes the preached, words, uh, the preached word into our hearts. May we receive and believe it and be cheered and comforted by it in eternity. Glorify your word in our hearts and make it so bright and warm that we may find pleasure in it. Through your Holy Spirit, think what is right, and by your power, fulfill the word. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes 
and a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I saw it for the first time 20 years ago. A painting in Atlanta's High Museum of Art that stopped me and held me for I don't know how long. Its creator, Benny Andrews, calls it revival meeting. In warm, vivid colors, he captures a dynamic scene of sorrow and joy, of repentance and promise, of grief and hope. Surrounded by people whose bodies mirror the pain that's in their hearts, a preacher man stands in a church. One finger pointing down at a mournful woman and another pointed up toward heaven. His tie flies up in the air and he has a radiant smile on his face. It seemed to picture the power of the gospel itself, and I couldn't stop looking at it. And so I immediately bought the print that's actually still hanging in my office. You can see it after the service. Uh, But here, 20 years later, I still love looking at it. I still love talking about it. Uh, There are some things that are so beautiful that we just want to keep seeing them. They, they don't get old to us. We, we want to keep enjoying them, and our enjoyment doesn't really diminish over time. In fact, our joy, our delight in that thing only deepens over time. And, and more than that, it also demands to be expressed. What is it that you just never get tired of seeing? What do you still even after all these years, what do you still enjoy so much that you're always happy when you get to share it with other people? Maybe it's a book, or maybe it's a band, or maybe it's your favorite food. I know a man who talks about his wife every chance that he gets. And it's sweet, even if, admittedly, to an outsider, it seems a little sappy sometimes. Uh, But you know that that man really loves her. And because he loves her so much, he he just can't help but share how he feels. He enjoys his life with her, and so he praises her publicly. That's what we hear in the psalmist. And enjoyment 
a love that demands to be expressed. In the psalm of praise, you hear joy pulsing through the psalmist. And it's a joy that has a distinct directionality to it. It's a, it comes to him and flows from him because he's thinking about the Lord. Uh, would you see Lord in all capitals in your English Bibles, like in verse 1 and throughout the psalm? That's how translators respectfully write the name by which the God of the Bible made himself known to Moses. His name, uh, quite literally, is ineffable. It's just four consonants in the Hebrew. But we've come to sound it as Yahweh. And so when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, he's inviting you to direct your affection to this God, Israel's God, the God of the Bible. In the story of redemption that is the Bible, Yahweh is the one who made all things and promised to redeem all things. He's the one who loves and chooses to bring near to himself idol worshipers like Abraham was. He's the one who is not ashamed to be the God of liars like Jacob, the God of slaves like the Israelites, the God of prostitutes like Rahab. Yahweh is the Lord, and He is the God who delights to rescue sinful and weak people and to restore them to himself and to reshape them, to restore in them the perfect image of his righteousness that he created us to have in the beginning. And so it's as if the psalmist is calling you today, saying, come, enjoy this God. Celebrate this, creating, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, redeeming God. And as He invites you, he's, He isn't content to have others enjoy God without Him. Praise the Lord, O my soul, He says. So that together, our expressions of enjoying God might mingle together, rising as a unified celebration of the one God who has captured our hearts with His beauty. Now today you know that there is a kind of spirituality that celebrates a kind of generic divinity. People are comfortable, all kinds of people are comfortable with the idea of an unknown, undefined, unspecified God. But, but you can't really enjoy something or someone so nebulous and impersonal. And, and I would argue this is one of the rich beauties of Christianity. We worship a known God. The God who's made himself known on the pages of the Old and New Testaments. And when you get to know Him, not as an abstract deity, but as a real person who speaks, who acts, 
who loves personally, then you, then you can love and you can enjoy them back, him back. This psalm is inviting you to enjoy the Lord. To celebrate His beauty today and forever. That's exactly what the psalmist intends to do. Uh, His love and joy in the Lord create a worthy aspiration in Him. Another translation of verse 2. Look at it. Another translation of this captures His tone of resolve. It's as if He says, I mean to praise the Lord all my life. I mean to sing His praises as long as I live. Because He enjoys the Lord, He intends to offer Him a lifetime of praise. Well, what does that mean? I want you to think about that with me for a moment. What does it look like to offer the Lord a lifetime of praise? We can hear the lifetime part in verse 2. That's pretty easy. He says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. There's clearly an issue of, of time here as his commitment to the Lord means that as long as breath remains in his lungs, he intends to never wander away from the Lord. He means to continue enjoying him and praising him to others. But when he adds... I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. His emphasis in my mind suggests that time is not the only thing on his mind. It seems that his plan is to actually embody his praise and enjoyment of God in every aspect of his life. Not only in the spiritual, but in the physical as well. In other words, he will praise the Lord. He will show forth his enjoyment of the Lord through his body. And this echoes throughout the story of the Bible as God's people throughout all the generations honor him not only with their lips, but with their lives. So for the psalmist, not only will his mouth sing of the Lord's goodness and faithfulness, but he'll also, he'll also be careful to use his eyes in a way that honors the Lord. Not only will they avoid looking lustfully, desiring what isn't his, but he will more positively look around him for ways to love and serve his neighbors, just as God has commanded him to do. He will use his hands that God has given him, his feet that God has made. He'll use his body to work in a way that shows that this God who made us also created work. And he created us to work, to add order and to add beauty to his creation. It it doesn't matter if the singer here is a king or a carpenter, a stable boy or a stonemason. His aim is to embody the praise of God with all of his body and soul and mind and strength. A life lived like this 
in such embodied praise of God is what the Bible calls a righteous life. Righteous living is embodied praise of the righteous one. When we do justice with our hands and feet, and and that's connected to a heart that enjoys the Lord, uh, doing justice is as honoring to God as songs that celebrate His kindness to us. For you and me today, we are called to offer the Lord a lifetime of embodied praise because He's worthy of that. And He is the Lord over every facet of life with our voices and with our wallets, with our eyes and with our work in all that we think and say and do. We're invited to display how much we enjoy this God. But it's more than merely an invitation. It is a call by the King of Heaven Himself. A call to enjoy Him and to display His worthiness in every aspect of my life. But if you're like me, as soon as I hear that call... I know that I haven't lived that way. And I'm guessing that you know you haven't either. So why don't we live that way? Why is embodied, an embodied praise of God in all of life, why is that so hard? Why do we love and enjoy God with less than 100% of our heart and soul and mind and strength? And the thought struck me. Could it be that we don't yet enjoy God nearly so well as we might? Not nearly so well as He deserves. And instead of enjoying Him so much that it spills over into worship, we love and we enjoy other things in His place trusting them, trusting in those other things to provide the joy that can only be found through the Lord alone. I think that's what the psalmist is actually warning us against in verse 3. Would you look at that? When he says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man. You can imagine, in the ancient world, maybe even much more so than today, a people's fortunes were greatly influenced by their leaders, by their princes, the leaders of their people. Then, as now, people looked to their leaders to provide peace, a bustling economy, a just and uh, stable society. To, To say it another way, if you had the right leader... You can enjoy a life of comfort, a life of security. And maybe you see where this is going. Because people today aren't any different than people back then. Whether it's a king or a a modern politician, many people today put their hope for a good life in influential leaders expecting them to right all the wrongs of this world and make life the way that we imagine it's supposed to be. 
Or, or if it's not a politician, we might look to influencers, the people of Instagram, to show us what the real good life actually looks like. We expect them to offer the solutions to us to solve life's problems. And we hear their voices, the voices, these influential voices saying, drink this, eat that, and you'll find the happiness that's been so elusive to you. Wear this and look like that, and then you'll find the popular people looking your way. Get into a relationship, and, and you'll feel wanted, and you'll feel affirmed as someone who is desirable. Get this job. Pursue that promotion to, the level in, to that level in the company, and you'll find the affirmation. You'll find the respect to which you're entitled. That'll make you feel like you've, you've really arrived. Can you see what's wrong with that? No, it's not wrong to eat well or dress well or be promoted. But when we depend on those things to make our lives full and whole, we're not really enjoying God. We're really focusing on enjoying ourselves. But on top of that misplaced praise, where we're actually enjoying ourselves more than enjoying the Lord, the vanity of depending on princes or politicians or anything else is shown to us in verses 3 and 4. Look there. When we put our hope in anything other than the Lord, when we worship and enjoy anything more than Him, disappointment is inevitable. Because in other hopes, there is no salvation, it says. Those other things don't actually have the power in them to fix your life. God never intended for you to find your identity or find your wholeness in them. And not only are those things powerless to give you the good life that you want, they're also fleeting. They are powerless and they are fleeting. A politician is not even able to sustain their own plans. Just look at the mess in Europe, uh, in England today, the whole Brexit mess. Look at our own country. What politician is able to sustain their own plans? What politician, what influencer is able to sustain their own life, much less fix yours? And when those other hopes fail, as they inevitably do, where does that leave you? Another pastor writes, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. We're all enjoying something. We're all pursuing something. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into, uh, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when the time, uh, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they actually do plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You see, there is a steep consequence for persistently enjoying and trusting in something other than the Lord. The consequence is that God may give you exactly what you have been pursuing. But in the end, those who want powerless and fleeting things will receive all the help that powerless and fleeting things can give, which is... None at all. And so for people like you and me, people who feel the pull to chase after other things and put our hope in other things, where is there actually real hope for people like you and me? I want you to contrast that hopelessness of verse 4 with the beatitude of verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. It's interesting here that the psalmist uses the name Jacob instead of the name that God later gave to him, Israel. It seems that we're meant to remember that to trust in the God of Jacob is to trust in the one who loves and transforms deeply sinful people. Because there was a time when Jacob trusted in himself to make a good life for himself. But God taught him lovingly, patiently, over the course of a lifetime, that Jacob can really only trust himself to make a mess of things. But God also taught Jacob that he was with Jacob wherever he went to protect him, to provide for him, and ultimately to bless him. And in verses 6 and following, the psalmist shows us why it is that a person who trusts in the Lord is blessed. Because he's showing us what kind of God the Lord really is. And through this vision of him and, and, and what he's like, the psalmist adds fuel to the fire of our praise. He's actually helping us to return to the Lord and to enjoy him. Because in verse 6, the Lord is the powerful and good creator who keeps faith. As one writer puts it, with men, the will is lacking as often as the power. That's why trusting in a man is an empty endeavor. But the Lord's will to save his people 
is so strong that he has never abandoned his plan to bless his people. He works faithfully in the story of redemption in spite of the constant faithlessness of his people. And in verse 7, we, we see that he is not only powerful and good, he's also just and he's generous, doing what's right for his people and providing for their needs. And, and beyond that, as we go through verses 7 and 8 and 9, he is gracious and merciful. He's the God who releases prisoners, who heals the blind, who lifts up people who are bowed down under the weight of sin. He loves. He loves those who by faith are counted as righteous. And He's the kind of God who takes care of weak and vulnerable people. Although they may, and although the wicked may seem to escape for a time, we're assured here that he brings the way of the wicked to ruin. Such that in the end, in verse 10, the psalmist celebrates that the Lord will reign as a king eternally over his people, a good and powerful and just and gracious and merciful king whose people enjoy life with him in his kingdom. The saints of the Old Testament knew the Lord to be this kind of God. They knew that He was worthy to be fully enjoyed, fully praised, with a lifetime of embodied praise. But you, you at this point in the story of redemption, you have better reason to enjoy Him. You have better reason to praise Him. Because in the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, the fullness of our hope in Him is revealed. Because like God the Father is God the Son. And in this word we see the good news that the Son is powerful and good. The Son through whom all things were made is the one who also keeps faith forever. That even when we as His people are faithless, He remains faithful. As Paul would later say uh, as an apostle, as Paul himself stood on trial for the sake of the Gospel, Paul said, all deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. We see in Jesus the God who is powerful and good, who creates and then keeps faith with His, with his creation. But we also see that the Son is as just and generous as the Father. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was pleased to submit Himself to be crushed beneath God's justice, satisfying it fully, not setting aside God's justice, asking the Father to simply wink at sin and pardon it. No, Jesus himself appreciates and loves God's just character, and he does justice himself. He's the one who blesses and protects his people, and he's the one who generously offers not only the things that we need, the daily bread that we need, 
but he offers his own body. In the ancient world, Caesar in Rome was praised for providing generously for his people. He provided bread and circus for them, free bread in the Colosseum, and games to entertain. But we have a Lord who is better still, because in his generosity, he gives his own body and his own blood to nourish and strengthen us, to carry us along and sustain us. In this word that celebrates how he watches over people, how he sets the prisoner free, how he opens the eyes of the blind, we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. And these are the very same words through which Jesus began his earthly mission, announcing his mission. And it's in his mercy that he lifts up those who are bowed down and how he provides for the weak and the lame. These are the words through which Jesus confirmed his identity as the Savior to the messengers of John the Baptist. The Son is as just and as generous as the Father. And just as the Father works judgment against those who rebel against him, In the same way, we know in the story that Jesus himself is the one who will bring the way of the wicked to ruin. And while that may be a fearful thing for those who continue to reject him, for you who receive him, you hear the good news that the Son is as gracious and merciful as the Father. This is good news for weak and struggling people who have failed and continue to fail. His mercy is what reaches into us and and brings healing. The healing that is promised here, Jesus accomplishes by his grace. Uh, Another pastor says that Jesus is ravished and smitten with us, even those of us whom no one else notices. This is Jesus, who is generous and gracious and merciful. And it's in his cross that he reveals all of that to us most fully. In that place where he gave his body and blood to secure for you and for me an eternal redemption. And when when you see him dying to make you his treasure, then, then he will be your treasure. And you will begin to enjoy him in a new way, a way that actually leads you into repentance, uh, in a way that actually turns you away from all of those other hopes, those false hopes, those counterfeit hopes, and turns you back toward the Son who is the same as the Father. And it leads you to embrace Him and hold on to Him and Him alone as your only comfort in life and in death, trusting that what He's done for other people, as He's displayed His mercy and His grace toward others, He's given it to you too.
Another pastor, I think, wisely points out that, of course, not even the strongest believers today love God perfectly. But we don't all embody praise toward Him as He deserves. And none of us even get close to doing that. And yet, he says, to the degree that you move toward loving and enjoying God, as he's revealed himself to us in Jesus, as you move toward loving him supremely, all those other things begin to fall into order, into their proper places in your life. Instead of looking to the things of the world as your deepest source of contentment, you can enjoy them for what they are. Money and career, for example, become just what they're supposed to be. Work becomes work. A great way to use your gifts and be useful to others. Money just becomes money. A great way to support your family and be generous toward others. But these things, these things are not your source of safety and contentment. Jesus is. In the gospel of Jesus, as we turn away from those other hopes and return to Him, to put our hope and our faith in Him, we can learn to use all those other things that we have been given, use them in ways that honor the one who is our true hope. Because as Jesus images the Father, as He is like the Father, we, loving Jesus, become like Him. Our, our king influences us, and we learn to imitate him, becoming like him, loving what he loves. And that means we do justice because of it. Because if he is just and generous, we as his people become a just and generous people working on behalf of those who are vulnerable. We, we ourselves become more patient with the weak and those who are struggling with sin because we know that He has been so patient with us. It's only this good news of Jesus. It's only as we enjoy Him more and more that we'll recognize that pursuing this life of obedience to Him, loving each other, being patient with each other, living that good life that we sang about earlier, we'll begin to recognize that that actually is the embodiment of our praise of God. We, we learn to enjoy Him and celebrate Him in every facet of our life. Worship ceases just to be that thing that we do for about an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning, and it begins to grow and expand and encompass all of life itself. And we can do that because we know that the truth of verse 5 is, is true of us in Christ, that we are blessed because our help is the God of Jacob. Our hope is in the Lord, our God. Another pastor said that the most rapturous delights you can ever have, 
the, the, the ones that you've had in the past, the beauty of a landscape or the pleasures of food or the fulfillment of a loving embrace, those are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see Christ face to face. And that's what we're in for. The promise of God assures us that is what we're in for. Uh, according to the Bible, that glorious beauty and our enjoyment of it, really our enjoyment of Him, have been immeasurably enhanced by Christ's redemption of us from evil and death. And so that's why the beauty of Jesus is something that his people now can grow in appreciation of, but we will never tire of seeing him when we see him face to face. We will throughout all eternity continue to love and enjoy and embody the worship, embody the praise of him who loved us and gave himself up for us. And seeing who the Lord is, knowing what it is that he's done, knowing what he still promises to do, he still is reorienting our hearts to lead us back to him. And that's why he gave you this meal. To show you once again his beauty and his grace that he is delighted to lavish on you, to make you his own. And so if you hear Jesus' voice today, as he invites you to his table, then come by faith in him. This table is not Trinity's table or this denomination's table. This is the Lord's table. It's for all those who have been baptized into Jesus and made public their profession of faith in him by joining themselves to his church. Now, if that's not you right now, I would encourage you, simply let these elements go by. But pray, I would encourage you to pray to the Father, asking Him to help you see this Jesus who so loves to save sinners like us. But let's pray as we come to the table. Father, by Your grace, we ask of You once again that You would, by Your Spirit, set apart these elements for our benefit. That as we eat and drink the body and blood of our Savior by faith, our souls would be strengthened to stand firm until Christ comes. This we ask you to the praise of your glorious grace. And in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.